Welcome to a History of the Space Race podcast. Episode 39, The Death of Sergei Korolev. Throughout the 1960s, Sergei Korolev's health was failing more and more. He still suffered from some injuries stemming from his time back in the Gulag in the late 1930s. But a lot of his ill health had to do with stress. He was a workaholic, and Korolev was not always an easy person to get along with. He had difficult relationships with many people, not the least of which were his rival rocket designer, Vladimir Chelemy, and his nemesis, the rocket engine designer, Valentin Glushko. The stress only became worse after Korolev began overseeing various manned spaceflight programs, like Vostok, then Soyuz, then Vashod, and then the N1L3. In fact, he suffered from multiple heart attacks in the 1960s. His last heart attack happened in February 1964. After this incident, doctors told him to go on a prolonged vacation. But, as I said, Korolev was a workaholic. He insisted on remaining at work until some important matters had been resolved. In this case, it was the approval of the manned lunar landing effort under his direction. As a result, he delayed his doctor-ordered vacation by about four months, until June 1964. The vacation was revealing about the status that Korolev had achieved at this point in life. He originally wanted to visit England with his wife. The Soviet government, however, stopped him. I haven't talked about this very much, but Korolev's identity and association with the Soviet space program was a closely guarded state secret. In the press, the Soviets only ever referred to him as the chief designer, or the chief designer of rockets. The secret was so well kept that the CIA questioned whether the chief designer was a single person, as opposed to a fictional character standing in for multiple people. The Soviet government could not allow Korolev to leave the country as his identity could be exposed. And with the Soviet Union's paranoia, one could not dismiss the possibility of fear that Korolev would seek to defect, though there's no indication that Korolev ever sought to do so. Korolev instead vacationed in Czechoslovakia still behind the Iron Curtain. In Czechoslovakia, Korolev was treated as a guest of honor, but his identity remained hidden. He was not allowed to sign the guest book for the Czechoslovak Communist Party's Central Committee. This would have been the usual practice 
or high-level visiting party officials. In December 1965, Korolev felt irritable and ill. He went to the doctors for examination. The doctors told Korolev that he had a polyp in his intestine that had to be removed. This was a fairly minor procedure. So Korolev was scheduled to return to the hospital for the operation in early January 1966. On January 14, 1966, Korolev was seen by the Soviet Minister of Health, Boris Petrovsky. Petrovsky would personally be performing Korolev's polyp operation. Petrovsky had taken over the operation because of Korolev's importance. But as Petrovsky held a high position himself, he was no longer as well-practiced operating on patients as a regular line doctor might have been. Now, the details of what happened during the operation remain a bit fuzzy. Sources on this seem to conflict, but there seems to be a consensus on the following basic facts. During the operation to remove the polyp, Korolev began to bleed profusely. Petrovsky then discovered that Korolev had a tumor the size of a fist in his abdomen. Petrovsky immediately called for a cancer specialist. The specialist and Petrovsky began an operation to remove the tumor. Korolev, however, continued to bleed heavily. Korolev's pulse stopped during the operation, possibly just 30 minutes in, even though the operation lasted a total of four hours. Korolev was never revived. In all likelihood, Korolev's weak heart, damaged by his time in the gulag and then his subsequent heart attacks, was likely a contributing factor to his death. Korolev had just turned 59 years old two days before his death. Based on the size of the tumor, the doctors guessed that Korolev likely would have only lived a few more months had the operation not happened. This was perhaps the most significant development for the Soviet Union during the space race so far. Sergei Korolev, the inventor of the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile, the launcher of Sputnik, the pioneer of the Soviet space program, the instigator of the space race, had died. The news of Korolev's death filtered out to his colleagues, others in the Soviet space industry, and to the highest levels of government. The story goes that Valentin Glushko received the news while he was in the middle of a meeting. He picked up the phone and someone told him that Korolev was dead. Glushko then put down the phone, he looked to the other people in the room and said Korolev was dead. 
Glushko then simply said, Now, where did we leave off? Glushko and Korolev, the partners that had made the R-7 rocket that made the launch of Sputnik possible, never mended fences. In the government, Leonid Brezhnev, the secretary general of the Communist Party, allowed Korolev's name to be disclosed and associated with the Soviet space program for the first time. A state funeral was held and Korolev's remains were buried in the Kremlin Wall, where they remain today. In the West, however, the death of Korolev was not fully appreciated at the time. An obituary in the West simply noted that Korolev was a designer of Sputniks and space capsules. Korolev's death left a vacuum in the Soviet space industry. Although there were other rocket engineers like Chelomey and Mikhail Yangel, Korolev was at the center of the ballistic missile industry from the start. In the late 1940s, he had been the chairman of the Council of Chief Designers, making him responsible for the overall development of ballistic missiles. Using the knowledge gained from German rocket engineers, he built the Soviet ballistic missile industry from the ground up. There was no one else like Korolev who had the knowledge and the accumulation of soft power from being in the Soviet rocket industry for 20 years. The engineers who worked under Korolev feared what succession might bring. Normally, the chief designer of an engineering bureau would be selected by a ministry known by the nondescript name Ministry of General Machine Building. The Secretary of the Central Committee for Defense Industries in Space, Dmitry Ustinov, would also be consulted on the selection. The Central Committee of the Communist Party would then receive the nominee and give official approval. Korolev's senior staff feared the consequences of an outsider being appointed by the Communist Party to head up their engineering bureau. Only an insider, someone among the senior staff, they thought, could possibly understand all the aspects and intricacies of all the projects under the bureau's purview. So the senior staff conferred among themselves and decided who among them should be the next chief designer to head up the engineering bureau. They eventually chose Korolev's first deputy, Vasily Pavlovich Mishin. Mishin, by all accounts, was a great engineer. Although Korolev had been credited with developing the R-7 as the world's first ICBM, Korolev himself would call the R-7 Mishin's rocket. Because Mishin was really the brains behind the engineering. Mission had also clearly been groomed by Korolev to take over the engineering bureau one day. But the problem with Mission was that he lacked Korolev's stature. 
mission was also far less tactful and diplomatic than even Korolev. In the feud between Korolev and Glushko, for example, the rumor was that Mission was the one who kept egging Korolev on. Mission strongly disfavored Glushko's use of unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine as a rocket propellant even more than Korolev, and he accordingly had an even more negative view of Glushko than Korolev. Mission was also incredibly stubborn and willing to tolerate a deadlock in which nothing happened for anyone rather than accept a compromise. These were not promising traits for someone who would need to lead hundreds of people in multiple complex manned spaceflight programs. Despite whatever character flaws Mission had, Korolev's senior staff unanimously signed a letter backing him to be their new chief designer. The letter was then sent to Ustinov. Apparently, the letter surprised Ustinov. Ustinov and other Communist Party officials had already decided that Georgi Tuyulin, the first deputy of the Ministry of General Machine Building, should take over Korolev's engineering bureau. Ustinov wanted to appoint someone he could control more closely to curb the powers of the next chief designer of such an important engineering bureau. I have not been able to find the details of exactly what happened next, but there appears to have been some negotiation within the Communist Party over who should lead the engineering bureau. The end result was that in May 1966, five months after Korolev died, Mission was officially appointed as Korolev's successor. In the coming years, the Soviet manned spaceflight program under Mission will face serious setbacks. And spoiler alert, the most serious of this will be the death of a cosmonaut during the Soyuz 1 mission. I will talk about these setbacks in detail, but I want to take us out of the immediate time frame we are in right now in early 1966 to talk about the bigger picture. In documentaries and history books, mission will often be portrayed as the unworthy successor to Korolev. There is the strong implication, sometimes made explicit, that the space race would have turned out much better for the Soviet Union had Korolev not died. In fact, there is an entire TV show on Apple Plus called For All Mankind that is built around this concept. It's about a world in which Korolev did not die, and as a result, the Soviet Union lands on the moon first. Even had Korolev lived, however, by this time in early 1966, it would have been highly unlikely, I might even say nearly impossible, for the Soviets to land on the moon before the United States. First, 
the Soviet Union's level of political commitment to a moon landing was never as strong as the United States. Second, the Soviet Union was far more committed to a manned circumlunar flight. This was a mission that was far less complex than a lunar landing, but still demonstrated substantial capability to compete in space. Third, the N-1 rocket was way behind schedule. A lack of testing facilities and quality control measures also meant that a lot of problems for the N-1 would have to be worked out during flight testing. By contrast, NASA's Saturn V rocket was nearly ready by 1966, and NASA had placed a lot of investment in making sure that the Saturn V would work the first time during an all-up test. Finally, Korolev's lunar landing proposal using the N1-L3 complex required mastery of a lot of complex skills to be feasible. This included rendezvous, docking, and extravehicular activities. NASA's Apollo program also required these complex skills, but NASA had recognized that fact early back in December 1961 and commissioned the Gemini program to learn these skills. Now, in early 1966, NASA was in the middle of that program learning all the skills needed for Apollo. By contrast, Korolev's Earth Orbital Soyuz program to learn the same skills with the Soyuz 7K-OK had just been approved. The likelihood that the Soviets could have completed their own program to learn advanced spaceflight and then launch a mission to land on the moon before NASA was simply unlikely, to say the least. Then we must talk about the likelihood of success even had the Soviets attempted a moon landing. Even assuming that Korolev, had he lived, was able to get the Soviet Union to a position where it could have launched an attempted lunar landing mission, the likelihood of disaster was quite high. The reliability of the N-1 rocket was questionable given the lackluster quality control, such as the test firing of only one-third of the first stage engines. Then there was the lack of redundancies in the L-3 spacecraft complex for the lunar landing. The lack of redundant systems had been necessitated by the fact that the N-1 was barely capable of launching the L-3 complex for a mission to the moon. This meant that there were a number of places where a single failure would mean the end of the mission, and likely the loss of the lives of the cosmonauts. The LK lunar lander, for example, had a single point failure because its descent engine was the same as the ascent engine. Consider also the necessity of extravehicular activities 
for the cosmonauts to transfer between the Soyuz 7K LOK portion of the L3 complex and the LK lunar lander portion. Each of the two EVAs, one to get to the lander and one to get back, increased mission risk and the likelihood of something going wrong. Korolev, however, had taken great risks in the past and thus far succeeded. For the Voshod 1, he had launched three people inside a modified Vostok spacecraft designed to carry one person. The spacecraft had no emergency abort system, despite some concerns about the reliability of the launch vehicle. Then, during Voshod 2, he basically jerry-rigged a system to allow for a spacewalk, and significant equipment defects had been found during the mission, especially with respect to the spacecraft orientation system. This had resulted in a series of problems that repeatedly placed the lives of the cosmonauts in danger. Korolev, under pressure for space spectaculars from the Soviet government, was willing to take greater and greater risks to satisfy the government. The appetite for space spectaculars and the pressure to take risks will continue to grow after Korolev's passing, while the Engineering Bureau is under mission's direction. But because of Korolev's premature death in January 1966, the historical narrative tends to separate Korolev from responsibility for the subsequent Soyuz 1 disaster and the general failure of the Soviet manned spaceflight efforts to the moon. This is sort of like how in the United States, we tend to separate President Kennedy from the Vietnam War, even though the seeds of that conflict had been planted by decisions during his presidency. Basically, what I'm saying is that the seeds for the subsequent failure of the Soviet Union's efforts in the race to the moon were all there when Korolev was in control. And while Mission has had his own fair share of the blame for how he will subsequently manage the Soviet manned spaceflight efforts, Korolev is not innocent and should not be divorced from the responsibility for the failures to come. To get back to our immediate events in early 1966, however, the death of Korolev will lead to a change in focus for the Soviet space efforts. The first major change was the official cancellation of the Voshod program. As with the Vostok program, the Voshod program was not planned out in advance. Unlike NASA's Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs, which had a set number of flights and goals for each flight spelled out in advance, Voshod had each mission planned one at a time in succession after the completion of the previous mission. So after the spacewalk mission with Voshod 2 in March 1965, Korolev had been working on a Voshod 3 mission. 
Vashad 3 was planned as a long-duration flight. In December 1965, however, Gemini 7 set a new flight endurance record of 14 days. Always focused on one-upsmanship, the Soviets now wanted to perform an 18-day flight with Vashad 3. This was quite a leap in capabilities, though. The longest flight that the Soviets had performed so far was the five-day mission with Valery Baikovsky on Vostok 5. The Vostok had been pushed to its limits to make that five-day mission work, and the Voshad was basically still a Vostok spacecraft. The Soviets, however, did get as far as launching an unmanned precursor mission to the Voshad 3 on February 22, 1966. Launched as Cosmos 110, a Vostok spacecraft had been modified to carry two dogs for up to 25 days in orbit. The mission ended after 21 days, however, due to a steady deterioration in the air quality as the mission progressed. When the dogs returned home, doctors discovered they suffered from loss of muscle, loss of bone, and confusion while attempting to walk. While they did return to normal about 10 days later, this raised medical concerns about whether a long-duration flight of this length was safe. Meanwhile, Mission and his engineers were running simulations on the ground to confirm that the life support system could in fact last 21 days, given the deterioration of the air quality during the Cosmos 110 test. One ground test showed that the life support system would only last 14 days, while another showed it would last 16 days. Mission also encountered problems with the parachute system being developed for the Vashad 3. The parachute ruptured in four separate tests. There were also problems with the variant of the R-7 rocket that was supposed to carry the Vashad 3 into orbit. On May 10, 1966, the new chairman of the Military Industrial Commission, Leonid Smirnov, called for the cancellation of the Vashad 3 mission. Smirnov argued that the now 16 or maybe 18 day flight would prove nothing. What the Soviet Union really needed to work on was maneuvering and docking. The fact that the Voshads could not do any of this highlighted Soviet weakness in comparison to the United States with their Gemini program. What they needed to do now was focus on Soyuz. The rest of the Military Industrial Commission, however, favored keeping the Voshad 3 mission, and Smirnov backed down. But two days later, on May 12, 1966, Mission was officially appointed chief designer to succeed Korolev.
mission supported the cancellation of the Vashad 3 mission and really the entire Vashad program altogether. He recognized, as Smirnov did, that the Vashad, really a Vostok, was totally obsolete. Mission did not want to start off his tenure as chief designer with an obsolete spacecraft. He wanted to focus on the Soyuz. So a state commission was now set up to review the entire Vashad program. And that review just kept getting kicked down the road one month after another. But by June 1966, Vashad 3 and the Vashad program were plainly over. In the interim, while Mission is focused on readying the Soyuz for the Soviet Union's second generation of manned spaceflight, the Soviet Union will focus increasingly on unmanned missions. This new focus on unmanned missions begins coincidentally just weeks after Korolev's death on January 31st, 1966. On that day, the Soviets successfully launched the Luna 9 probe toward the moon. I have not talked about the Luna program since all the way back in episode 3. In that episode, I mentioned that Luna 1 was the first probe to do a lunar flyby in January 1959. Luna 2 was an impactor probe that became the first man-made object to strike the moon in September 1959. Luna 3 was the first probe to enter circumlunar orbit and returned photos of the dark side of the moon. I have not continued following the Luna program since these successes for a few reasons. First, there is surprisingly little reliable information on the Luna program, at least in English language sources. Second, the Luna program appears to have been largely delegated by Korolev to a subcontractor. And finally, the Luna program was a total failure after Luna 3, right up until Luna 9 in the first months of 1966. Luna 9 was a probe designed to make a soft landing on the surface of the moon. From there, the probe would return the first images of the lunar surface. The Soviets launched similar soft landing probes to the moon in the past, but they had all failed. But this time, on February 3rd, 1966, four days after launch, Luna 9 successfully touched down on the moon's surface, becoming the first spacecraft ever to make a soft landing on the moon. The landing showed that the surface of the moon would not collapse like a sponge or absorb a spacecraft like quicksand a concern that both the Soviets and NASA had. The propaganda value of Luna 9's success 
had been weakened somewhat when the British, not the Soviets, were the first to publish the images from the moon's surface. In a rare bit of Cold War cooperation, the Soviets had asked the British to use their large radio telescope at Jodrell Bank to track Luna 9. Due to the massive size of the telescope, the fact that the telescope was steerable, and the position of the Earth and the Moon at the time of Luna 9's landing, Jodrell Bank was the only facility capable of tracking Luna 9 at landing. Thus, the British received a copy of the photos from Luna 9 and sent them to the press before the Soviets made the images public. After Luna 9 came the success of Luna 10 on April 4, 1966. Luna 10 became the first artificial satellite around the moon after entering lunar orbit. The Soviet achievements of the first soft landing on the moon, followed by the first artificial satellite to orbit the moon, had probably been timed specifically to deny the United States those titles to first, in the continuing Soviet game of one-upsmanship. NASA had been broadcasting the fact that it would, around mid-1966, launched the Surveyor Probe to land on the Moon and the Lunar Orbiter Probe to orbit the Moon, both of which I will cover in a future episode. Due to the lack of sources about the Soviet Luna program, I can't say for certain that the timing of Luna 9 and Luna 10 had been influenced by NASA's Surveyor and Orbiter probes, but Given what we know already about how the Soviets planned their space program, it would not be surprising. The sudden success of the unmanned missions to the moon, however, will come to shape the Soviet manned lunar landing program as well. The unmanned spacecraft will come to be a crutch on which mission will seek to rely to address the serious deficiencies in Korolev's N1-L3 lunar landing plan. But I'll talk about that in a future episode when these revisions to the manned lunar landing effort become more concrete. For now, next time I have to go back to the United States, where in March 1966, the Gemini program will encounter its first near-fatal disaster. This disaster, however, will shine a light on an astronaut who remains cool under pressure. An astronaut whose name history will long remember. Neil Armstrong. <laughs>